We're going to be in two main texts this morning, and while the offering plate is being passed, um, it, once it passes you, grab that Bible if you would. If you don't have your Bible with you, there's one right in front of you in the back of that pew. For those of you who are on the front row, you know, normally the only ones on the front row are those who come in late. Not that that's any of you, but I love having people closer to me. That is awesome. And you should be happy. Diane and Roger Brotsman used to sit on the front row, and then they figured out that I hardly ever look at the people on the front row, so they, they moved back so that I would look at them. It's really quite endearing. <laughs> Next week, we're going to be leaving the garden. And what I mean by that is we have one more week, and that's today that we're going to look at what marriage was originally intended by God to be. Then we're going to see what happened when sin entered the picture, and that's when we move into the two towers. Well, we're in a series called The Fellowship or The Lord of the Rings, and we're actually in it, the first part of it. We're following the movie trilogy, but we're actually inflating it with redemptive meaning when we say The Fellowship of the Ring. What is marriage like when God originally designed it? You're going to see behind me a quote from, Char from uh, William Barclay. And he says this, Christian marriage is the most precious relationship in life whose only parallel is the relationship between Christ and the church. See, this marriage of Christ to the church. Now, friends, listen, I've got to have your attention because this is underscoring the entire series, much less this sermon the relationship of Christ to his church is seen all throughout the Bible, notably Revelation 21, where the angel came to the apostle John and said, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, did you know that Jesus has a wife and her name is not Mary? Contrary to the Da Vinci Code. Her name is the church and the church is God's called out assembly of people, not an institution, not a denomination. It's his people all over the world at all times who have bent their knee to Christ and put their faith in him alone. And Paul says in Ephesians 5.32 that this truth, that what he's talking about when he's talking about marriage between a man and a woman, he's really talking more about Christ's marriage to the church and friends listen paul says this is profound now why is it profound and we read that and we say okay if we're going to be students of god's word and not just take your daily injection of the daily bread if you're going to actually get in god's word and study it and know god through his word then when you come to parts like this and it says that uh, this is profound you've got to stop and say why why is this profound? Well, let me try to explain it a little bit. By the time of Christ, the Old Testament's ideal of marriage was virtually destroyed. It was a mere shadow of its former self. Now, the Bible is written within three main cultural contexts. You have Hebrew, almost the entire Old Testament. And then you've got the Greek culture. And then you've got the Roman culture. 
And let me tell you what marriage was like in all three of those cultures. In Judaism, ladies, listen to this. A woman was no longer even a person. She was a thing. She had no legal rights. She could be dismissed by her husband simply by a piece of paper called the Certificate of Divorce. In fact, it had gotten so bad, ladies, that Jewish girls were even reluctant to marry. Whole segments of their population refused to be married because marriage had become such a risky endeavor. In the Greek culture, wives were seen only as childbearers and homemakers. To them, a wife had no part in her man's life, not even looked upon by him as a true companion. She was a glorified nanny. And while it was the expected norm that she would stay home and tend to the children and make the home, he was free to pursue whatever dalliance he wanted with another woman. And then you get to Rome, the sewer of the ancient world, and one of its greatest historians, Seneca, wrote this, women are married to be divorced and are divorced to be married. That was the Roman sentiment on marriage. In fact, another historian, Jerome, tells of a woman, a Roman elderly woman, who was married to her 23rd husband, and he had been married to her, his 21st wife. This was the norm. And you add to this the incredibly rampant homosexuality, promiscuity, it characterized ancient Rome. And now you can see how distorted marriage had actually become and literally how profound this biblical standard was. You see, what Paul is doing is he's returning marriage back to the originally stated ideal and standard. And against the backdrop of that uh, dark time, it was brilliantly beautiful. And what Paul does in Ephesians 5.31 is he directly quotes the words of Genesis 2. 24. Now listen, some people think that Adam spoke these words. Others say, no, Adam didn't speak those. It was Moses, when he wrote the account of original creation, he wrote in these words. But friends, let me tell you that Matthew 19 clearly tells us who spoke these words. Jesus, now listen, this is important. Jesus says it was God his Father who spoke these words I'm about to read. And here are the words of God. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And in these words that God has spoken, he's given us a design clearly for a deeply satisfying, God-honoring marriage. Now, let me pause and make a promotion. I think I have to do this every week. This is an incredibly complex series if you can actually put yourself in my shoes for a minute because i'm preaching on marriage to singles and to married for people in happy marriages people in miserable marriages people whose spouses have left them people whose spouses are no longer alive this is an unbelievably difficult series and so i feel like every time i preach this i have to stop and say why should you if you're single listen to this series 
unabashedly, I'm telling you, not because I'm that gifted of a preacher, it's just simply the Word of God that I'm declaring to you. It can help you have a wonderful, deeply satisfying, God-honoring marriage one day. And if you would listen and begin in applying these to your heart, it's going to help you avoid a miserable marriage. And I do mean miserable. And if you're married, I'm telling you right now in my own marriage and in yours, I have supreme confidence that God's word can always increase the satisfaction of our marriage. Nobody's marriage is yet fully satisfying to God. Nobody's. And we need to be growing. So what do we learn when we look at God's design for marriages? Four things. Let me start with the first. In God-honoring marriages, the man makes his wife his greatest priority. Now, ladies, no elbows. Some of you I heard have been sharpening them. Put the pads on. Move away if you need to. No elbows. Men, these first two points are to us. If we're going to have a deeply satisfying, God-honoring marriage, then we got to do what God said and leave our parents and hold fast to our wives. What's that mean? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. You know, every earthly marriage is meant to reflect Christ's marriage to the church. And Jesus Christ left his father to come to earth for his wife, the church. The act of a groom on the day of his wedding, leaving his parents. Friends, listen, this is beautiful. It reveals the glory of Jesus Christ who left his father's side to come and gather for himself a bride. Man, when we successfully leave our parents, and listen, not every man does. But when we successfully leave our parents redemptively in the way that Christ left his father, we are bringing glory. Our marriage is pointing and bringing glory to the marriage of Christ and his church. This is God speaking these words. And he's saying for all marriages at all times that the man must leave his parents and move toward his wife. But what's that word really mean when we see it in verse 31 what's that word leave really mean well it carries the idea to break with something in order to press towards something new now let that sink in to break with something in order to press toward something new it's breaking from one relationship in order to move toward another because until the man gets married his chief loyalty is to his parents. But now he's to shift his chief loyalty to his wife. It doesn't mean that the man no longer has anything to do with his parents. It doesn't mean that he no longer loves his parents or takes care of them, that they're unimportant in his life. It merely means that the priority that the parents once had in the man's life is now taken from the parents and shifted to his wife. Leaving parents means the man shifts to a new priority. And now no longer is he led by his parents, but he is to lead his wife. 
Now, I told you that Ephesians 5 is a direct quote from Genesis 2, and that's, that was written in the Hebrew language. So what does, whole, what does leave mean in the Hebrew language? Well, it has a similar idea to loosen or relinquish your grip. He's got to loosen his ties to his parents, and the parents have got to relinquish their grip on him. For parents to constantly give advice to the new couple and to intervene and to help and to bail out is rarely ever helpful in a marriage. It usually gets in between the couple and creates resentment. The couple needs their space. They need their time to create their own family. And men, listen, who's supposed to take the initiative in this? It's the men. So why did God say that the man must leave his parents and hold fast to his wife? Why didn't he say what a lot of us thought he said for the woman to do that? That's what we model in our wedding ceremonies. It's the father that walks the bride to the altar and gives her away to the man. And when I ask them who gives this woman to be married to this man, it's always her mother and I. So honestly, we've got it backward. The command is to the men. But why? I don't think the answer is that complicated. I think it's because both, while both the men and women have been in, the, in a relationship of submission to their parents, now in the new family, between the husband and wife, she, the wife, is to submit willingly and he is to lead graciously. Lovingly, gently, courageously, the man is to take the lead in leaving his parents and moving forward to his wife and helping her to do the same with her own parents because she'd be willing to transfer leadership from the parents to the gracious, loving, courageous husband. And what happens when it's successful is that immediately the husband and wife realize that they must find their strength of marriage in each other and in Christ, not in their parents. But the command moves on. He says not only for the man to leave his parents, he says he must hold fast to his wife for a lifetime. So in God-honoring marriages, the man holds fast to his wife for life. Now, friends, I've got to keep returning to this because you can't develop God's ideal and standard of marriage without going back to what it points to. And what marriage on earth points to is Christ's love for his church. You see, Christian marriage was designed always, eternally, to point to the covenantal love of Christ who holds fast to his wife dying for her, giving her the dowry of his own blood. You know, in Paul's day, husbands seldom held fast to their wives. She was a commodity, easily traded in for a new model. In fact, if you go and study the rabbinical school of Hillel, you'll find that in that school, husbands were given the permission to divorce their wives if she even burns his dinner. Even worse, another rabbinical school. Some of you husbands are like, 
getting a gleam in your eye that's sick. Another rabbi taught that divorce was legal if a man found a woman more beautiful than his wife. This is Judaism. This is the religion of the Old Testament. See, the biblical design that God declared is that the husband hold fast to to his wife. And while both husbands and wives need to hold fast to one another, friends, listen, men, it's the husband who is commanded to take the initiative in this. We see in Genesis 2, 24, the original command, the words hold fast, it's it's actually one Hebrew word that's a verb. It's in constant motion and application, not a one-time vow at the wedding altar and done. And it means that you stick or cling to something else. The word describes clods of dirt that clump together. The words used in the Old Testament are the scales on a crocodile that are tightly packed together. The words used in the Psalms of the evil deeds that follow a wicked man, they cling to him. The words used in the Old Testament of lepers because the stench of leprosy clings to the leper. In every one of its use, uses, the idea is that two things or two people have become so close that they are seen as one, they're actually indistinguishable from one another. And men, listen, the idea is that like the scales of a crocodile are so densely packed that nobody can thrust a, a spear in between them, we're to hold fast to our wives so closely that the enemy cannot disrupt with his arrows. We're to be so held together that seeds of bitterness cannot fall in there and root and take resentment and put it in our hearts. We're to do that with strength and intimacy and courage. But I told you that this is a direct quote Paul makes from the Hebrew, so that's what it means in the Hebrew to hold fast. What's it mean in the Greek language in Ephesians 5? It literally means to be glued, cemented, or fastened together, and to be so united that you're in a permanent bond. This is what Jesus meant when in Matthew 5, 19, he quoted Genesis 2, 24, then Jesus commented on it, and he said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. We're to be holding fast and not separating it. Now, friends, listen. Please. It's for this reason that God says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, I hate Divorce, these are God's own words from his own lips. Because God has always hated divorce and he's always going to continue to hate divorce because it tears apart what he ordained to be permanently glued together in this life. He hates divorce on any terms. And for any reason, although, listen, he allows it for a certain narrow reason, And he will forgive it, just like he will for any other sin, but God will never change his mind. He hates divorce, and he always will. 
Because marriage was given to us to reflect the beauty, the strength, the permanency of Christ's unbreakable covenant of marriage with his church. Now, friends, listen to me. When couples in the church that are Christians divorce, they point their divorce to God and they defame him from the glory that Christ has with his church. It's how marriage functions. When your marriage is strong and is God-honoring, it will bring glory to God. And when you break your vows and you separate, it defames glory from God. So God has a little word to say to us men. He says it to me, just like to all of you men, if you're going to marry, then leave your parents and glue yourself to your wife in an unbreakable bond for the rest of your life. And hold fast and bring glory to God. But he moves on. And in love and in God-honoring marriages, God partners with the husband and the wife. Now, ladies, this is where you're coming back in. First two points were for the men. Now it's for both husbands and wives. And Paul wrote in chapter 5, verse 31, And the two shall become one flesh. Now Jesus speaks about this again in Matthew 19. And he comments on it. And he says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And he says this, look at the underlining, what therefore God has joined together. Who joined them together? Did the pastor, when he married the couple? Did the parents, when they let go and relinquished? Did the husband and the, or the groom and the bride, when they took their vows, is that what joined them? The Bible says God is the only one that joins And friends, you need to listen to this. And some of you are going to have a hard time with this, but I'm telling you what the Bible says in Christian marriage. And please note, it's only in Christian marriage. There aren't two partners. There's three. And that third one is God himself who enters into the covenant as a helper and as a partner and as a joiner. It's what he does. It's why marriage cannot and must not be unequally yoked. A believer cannot, by God's design, marry an unbeliever. Friends, I'm telling you, don't disregard this. You know, some of the testimonies that I love the most and I despise the most, I know that sounds terrible, you'll understand it in a minute, are those testimonies of, of couples who married unequally yoked. One was a Christian and one wasn't. And God saves the other one. I love that testimony, but then I find it really troubling because after 13 years of youth ministry, I've heard over and over and over from teenage girls and teenage boys who are dating seriously an unbeliever, and they've told me in their defense, my parents didn't marry equally yoked, and God rescued my dad, or God rescued my mom. And I'm telling you, that is disobeying God's word, but yet God's grace will sometimes rain down upon that couple, but more often than not, it doesn't. And what they experience is a miserable marriage that only compounds itself when they have children. Friends, I know I'm speaking boldly to you, but it's the word of God to not be unequally yoked. And it makes no help to say, well, that person goes to church. Does that person 
have their trust only in Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation. Because two people, friends, listen, this is why I'm so bold about this. Two people cannot become one flesh when the most central area of their life is incompatible. They can attain unity in finances. They can enjoy hobbies and endeavors together, but they cannot become one at the spiritual level. It's the very core and the power and the beauty of marriage. The glue of marriage doesn't stick at that level. And if you don't believe me, just think about it like this. Our supreme example is God who loves the world, yet is not compatible, is not in, a re, in an intimate relationship that is peaceful and unhindered with an unbeliever. He cannot do it. And neither can a believing spouse with an unbeliever. But there's one more point this morning, and it's the fourth one. And friends, I kind of think it might be the most important. Because in God-honoring marriages, husbands and wives extend grace to each other. We see in Genesis 2.25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, parents, if you have your little ones in here, don't worry. This verse has very little to do with sexuality. It was God's original intent for marriages. But what does it mean that they were naked and unashamed? It wasn't just because they were both beautiful and had no physical defects. Although they did have beauty unparalleled, Adam and Eve. But it means that they were completely exposed to the eye of each other and the eyes of God. And they were free from any failure that could lead to shame or fear. That's what it means to be naked and unashamed. And even now, friends, listen, this is why this is so, so important. Even today, after sin has entered our world, both Jesus and Paul quote verse 24 as the continuing design for godly, redemptive marriages. Why? Because verse 24 today can still produce verse 25. Just as a loving commitment of our Savior can begin to replace shame in his bride with his favor. And from the beginning, marriage was meant to be a vehicle from eternity. Even before Adam and Eve were created, marriage was meant to be a vehicle for us to experience the loving, committed, enduring power of the same exact relationship that's within the triune God. So the way that, the, that God the Father loves God the Son and the way that Jesus loves the Spirit can still be the way that we love one another in marriage, but only through Christ. The wife of the Lamb, friends, is free from shame. Now listen, not because she's perfect. We're the best example of an imperfect church that God holds as perfect. Because he sees us with his righteous vision because we're in Christ. And what he has for us is not condemnation. What he has for us is commendation. Men, you ever dropped hints to your wives that the local gym has a membership deal going on? 
Ladies, have you ever talked about another husband's ability to just seemingly fix everything around their house? These and hundreds more scenarios foster the condition, listen, of being naked and ashamed in your own covenantal marriage. You know, the wandering eyes of a husband rarely ever go unnoticed at the beach. And ladies, listen, be re- a man being reminded how her father always did things rarely ever instills her favor in his life. But there are two ways that we could be naked and unashamed in our marriages, and I want to give you both, both of them. Number one, you could be perfect, have no defect, and no failure that would lead to disgrace. This was the condition of Adam and Eve. It's never been duplicated in humanity. In fact, they lost it. We're going to see it next week. But there's a second way, and it's a way that we in Christ can learn to be naked and unashamed in our marriages, and it's this way. It's to be imperfect, but have no fear of being disapproved by your spouse because that spouse extends grace and favor to you. This is the potential This is what we can experience today in marriages who are guarded and girded in Christ. You know, the phrase, we're not ashamed, you know what it means? It's really very, very fascinating. It means to be without a failure that leads to disgrace. It's to be without a failure that leads to disgrace. And Christians have the potential to be free from shame, not because we're perfect, but because we have no fear that Christ will condemn us or shame us for our sin. And now because Christ's death and his burial and his resurrection, God sees us perfectly with perfect clarity and he holds us in his grace of favor rather than disfavor. And it creates peace with God. And in spite of our sin and between husbands and wives, it creates shame-free peace between two imperfect people. You know what criticism is? And by the way, it's one of the most prevalent reasons that people land in marital counseling. You know what it's like for a husband or a wife to be critical towards her spouse or his spouse? Criticism is the pounding of the gavel that says you're guilty. At the same time, you climb on a throne and say you've got the right to judge. Criticism is taking God's job and saying to that person, I'm going to force you to change into my image. And this is the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to weaken you until you will change the way that I demand. Believe me, I know what I'm talking about because if you ask my wife, that's what I do. And it's what a lot of us do. It comes on board with our sin nature and it gets fueled and amplified by your upbringing. But it kills grace. If I can't give grace to my wife, it means I can't receive it from God. And if I can't receive grace from God, friends, literally, I have no ability to give grace to anybody, much less my my covenantal partner. 
It's His grace flooding our hearts that extends so powerfully to our spouses that when they fail, when they make a mistake, they know that we're not going to condemn them. They know we're not going to reject them. They know we're not going to disapprove of them. We're going to love them and we're going to be redemptive tools in their lives. So can it be said of us that in our marriages we really are naked and unashamed? Can any of us really say that in your marriage? It's possible, but through Christ alone, it's His grace that needs to do it. Friends, this is the redemptive power of marriage. And it's the way marriage was designed from the beginning that men, listen, you would leave your parents and shift your priority to your wife holding so closely to her that nothing could get in between, not bitterness, not the enemy, not another woman, not a career, nothing. You hold fast. And that both husbands and wives will realize they're not alone in marriage. There's a partner, there's a joiner, there's a God whose power floods our hearts through grace that when we extend it to one another, we get to taste the joy of a naked and unashamed marriage. The only other option, friends, I don't think there's any more than two. It's either to live out what I just said in the power of Christ or to withhold God's grace to your spouse and force them to live naked and ashamed. It's the fellowship of the ring. Fellowship of the ring is the marriage that Adam and Eve enjoyed before sin came into the world. And listen, it's the marriage that you and I can recover through Christ. Or there's no hope. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Lord, I'm sorry I am such a grace, uh, such a poor grace dispenser. Lord, I pray that I would learn it. Lord, I pray that through the power of Christ, I would give it to both Denise, my children, my friends. Lord, I pray that we all would learn to, Lord, extend grace to one another. Lord, let us be men that know that you've spoken uniquely to us to hold fast to our our wives and to leave our parents in the right way. And Lord, the husbands and wives will realize that there is a third party. There is a God, a joiner, a powerful God who floods our hearts with grace because it's a precious commodity for marriage. And when it's extended to one another, we can live fully transparent and fully in our favor. Pray we would learn it in Jesus' name. Amen.